0: We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. All right, so why the church? And I had
1: some conversation with Ian that was really helpful. And he some of his own of interesting questions. Um, I'm actually going to start with, by reading a prayer. If you're not in the mood to pray, I'll read it to you. And part of the reason I'm doing this is that this prayer um, on your handout is from morning prayer from last Wednesday, which was the Feast of St. John Lateran. And as I read it, um, it just seemed to me that it's, it embodied everything I want to talk about, especially in the first half of the paper. So, all right. Oh God, who from living in chosen stones... Prepare an eternal dwelling for your majesty. Increase in your church the spirit of grace you have bestowed, so that by new growth your faithful people may build up the heavenly Jerusalem through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so it's often observed that having a major feast day about a building is kind of weird. Because usually feast days are and celebrations are about people and things that people have done. Um, have any of you been to Rome? I'll stop messing with my hair, did you go to St. John Lateran? No, we didn't. <gasps> Shocker! Next time, okay. Um, and it's not—it's out of the way, it's like beyond the Colosseum, it's not like an obvious destination for a lot of people unless you're a big fan of the Colosseum or San Clemente and Dominicans. But St. John Lateran was dedicated by Pope Sylvester around 324 A.D. And initially it was a, like a local festival. Um, but in 1565, it was extended to all the Roman or Latin Rite churches. We use those terms somewhat interchangeably for the sake of honoring Rome as the place where the church was founded, in a sense. Um, more specifically, the feasts, is, I think, as you can see from the prayer, are supposed to direct the hearts of the faithful toward the episcopal see of the Bishop of Rome, who is the Pope, as a sign of unity and governance through charity. So it is very much like the Roman feast day in many ways. I think what this prayer is starting to do for us is give us a kind of definition or content of what the church is. So first of all, as according to the prayer, the church is something established by God and given life in an ongoing way by God. That might seem really obvious, but as I say when I do ecclesiology, this is primarily what makes a church different from like the y, a YMCA, you know? Okay, one has a pool, but you know, it's like this is why when you enter a church, you should feel and act differently from going to the YMCA or to a grocery store. Founded by God, given life by God. Second, the church is primarily its members filled with the Holy Spirit. Grace affects adoption as children of God. In this, God's people become temples of the Holy Spirit individually, but then corporately they become the body of Christ are united by the glue, as it were, of charity, and united under Christ as the head of the body. And third, the purpose or end of the church, according to this prayer, is to be a dwelling place for the majesty of God. So think of the prophetic imagery. This is the last time I'm going towards my bag. I promise. Um, you think of the imagery or the from the Old Testament, like in the Book of Exodus and beyond, when the, the Hebrew people are wandering the wilderness and the majesty of God follows them and they set up their, when they stop, they set up their tabernacle, the tent of meeting, cloudy pillar descends, Moses goes in, he comes out his face glowing. So majesty is an interesting idea. He call it glory, but that's what the end or the purpose of the church is supposed to be. It's a place where God is met in all of his fullness and like the temple itself eventually, and his glory is supposed to be communicated. And this is chiefly through prayer, through liturgy, through the sacraments with the final goal of holiness or perfection okay so what i can do in my talk um this evening is three things just starting with that threefold definition i like threes Um, first offer a kind of natural law argument for the necessity of the church um, but then intermingle it with a biblical argument for each point this is really important because you call it a kind of a faith reason approach but what we're interested in i think here is not just why or the perspective of revelation, but why is this plausible? Like why why is this appealing to natural reason, this idea, the reality of the church? Second, I'll get a bit more specific and address the question why the Roman Catholic church, Roman specifically, and that's where the quotations from the early church fathers come in. And then at the end, I just wanna make a few comments about sort of the payoff of the commitment to Catholicity and Christian unity. Um, and that's what I'm, we'll be getting at with the right-hand side of the page here. I'm not gonna go into de- all sorts of detail about you know, the Melkite, right, don't worry. But just to give you a picture of, because when we say the church is one, holy, Catholic, apostolic, the Catholic and the one necessarily mutually reinforce each other. Their foundation is apostolic. And then you walk down Franklin Street and it's like, amy, Methodist, first, Baptist, like, come on. And you look at Catholics, Latin mass, not Latin, just like, come on, people. This this plot this claim that that the there's only one church is ridiculous uh, by all by all accounts. So I want to just say a few words about that and we can chat about that more if you want. Okay. So first part, the necessity of the church. Why the church? So I've already given a kind of definition of the church, but for the sake of brevity, I'll squish all those bits together and propose that church is the visible community of Christians. United by faith in Jesus Christ, and living in accordance with the same faith. So belief in life, but first Christ. Okay, even a definition like that proposes some challenges. People might have some objections. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of the, the well-documented contemporary phenomen, phenomenon of SBNR, spiritual but not religious. Um, or um, if you've heard of Christian Smith, a sociologist at Notre Dame, he's done a lot of research into um, the faith of young Catholic Americans. I think he has two books now. Um, he sort of coined this moniker, moral therapeutic deism, as the faith of most American Catholic young people. I mean, the, the these two ways of looking at the modern situation suggest that we probably are much more individualist than we like to think, and we see religion as a matter of personal judgment and life choices. Um, I know plenty of people, even Catholics, who one could describe as eclectic. I believe X and Y, but I disagree with A and B. Um, I usually go to mass or I usually pray, but you know, it depends where I am and this and that. That's maybe not a great example of eclecticism, but um, what I mean by sort of, by alluding to the spiritual, not religious, the resistance to visible institutional unity. Well, honestly, I think the best example I can just illustrate this is my children. Now you're gonna say, wow, she's a terrible mother, but you know, as, you're, as you get older, you get into the teenage but my children are becoming still teenagers. You know, you have to give them the right sort of space. They have to own, own it for themselves. That's a weak defense. But I've noticed as they get into the teenage years, as if they don't want to go to mass on a Sunday, they're say, well, it's an obligation, like it's the law of the church. That wrong move to make. As soon as I say obligation or law, it's like clean up your clothing. It's like this external thing, like a stoplight, that's making me do what I don't want to do. It has nothing to do with directing to me to my good, my perfection, my happiness. This idea, St. Thomas says, that the law exists to make men good. Okay, so there's a the teenage thing there, but I think that there's an element of that that, that is present in all these phenomena, spiritual but not religious, and religious eclecticism, moral therapeutic deism. We just are not inclined to following the rules and submitting to institutional authority. And you know what? Yeah, it's just human nature. Okay, but the argument contrary to this, the first sort of natural law or rational argument for the necessity of the church is that we are beings of community. So when the law is given to Moses, as St. Thomas Aquinas observes, there is nothing in the Ten Commandments that could have been a surprise. Don't kill your neighbor, okay? Like Thomas says very clearly, and I I think I put just one quotation there, that basically the content of the Ten Commandments are principles or they're legal principles that are articulations of basic human rationality. Okay, so what's the big deal with the tablets? Well, the, the, what's important about them is that they come from God and that puts a new gravity on the law. But mm-hmm. more importantly, they constitute the people as a people. And you get all this covenantal language, I've given you the law, this defines you and unites you as my people. This is why as you're know, going through the wilderness, then and it seems rays of the lost ark. Like These tablets are handled with incredible reverence and if the wrong people even touch the thing carrying it they'll like die. Um, So it represents the awesomeness of God as revealed but also um, that in a sense they are the work of God's hand directly and there's there's more to it than that but the point here is the law being given by God with nothing in it new uh, makes them God's people. so law in the Old Testament, I'd say, on the whole, it is basically, as I've just suggested, it's, it's reasonable. It's based in natural law. Um, it, and it articulates reasonable goods for each person. Don't steal your neighbor's stuff. Take time in the week to worship, honor God, and spend time with your family. With re- regard to the origin of the law, it is, of course, divine, as I've said, and also unites the people as a people. Okay, sounds great, but that's biblical. It's not really convincing to anything, right? Okay, don't you think that we're beings of community, fundamentally? no you're not convinced you I, I the argument is not that complicated in a way um just we can take another approach if we take um i, mean, I do think that we deep downside de- depending on our stage and state of life that i think there is like a resurgence of a sense of desire and need for a community you see this in a lot of movements um being in a town like this just felt like my my husband's family is from Montpelier, Vermont. feels like it's like four times the size of Vermont, Montpelier, rather. But with with basketball, and that's not a very flattering description of this town. But but that is like you you do see a lot of uh, of elements of sort of a desire for community engagement and and this and that and renewal of craft and I don't know about agriculture. That's a, that's a big thing up in Vermont is young families coming back and revitalizing the towns they grew up in and farming and such. So I do think at the sociological level, there's evidence for a longing for community. Okay, a more classical approach to give you an actual argument would be to think about the virtues. Some of you have studied, maybe or are studying ethics, or you've heard about the cardinal virtues from classical philosophical tradition. Temperance, courage, prudence. Um, what I'm missing, and justice, the one most important for what I'm about to say. Um, if you think of these virtues, you know the idea that we're beings in development, and we probably all temperamentally, personality-wise, have certain inclinations, we're attracted to certain things, not to other things. Um, but the idea of virtue is that you know, with repeated habitual action, like if you're by nature a cowardly person, um, you see a situation of conflict and you avoid, you run away. If that, if you see that that generates behavior that's unjust, that's wrong, that your that it has a damaging effect on yourself or others, then you can sort of do specific things to mitigate that natural tendency to flight. If you take the easiest of the four virtues, that of temperance. Temperance is the virtue that regulates us in regard to the food, drink, on the one hand, like sexual appetite, on the other hand, um, and temperance. Um, yeah, it's about the well-developed capacity to use certain things justly in a way that respects your inherent goodness. So if we go out to dinner after this and I engage in profound gluttony, just terrible gluttony, you might think, okay, how is that demonstrating the social character of a human being? Well, if I, take, if I engage in gluttony, first of all, I'm doing harm to myself and there's a way in which there's an otherness to my body. Um, I'm also doing harm to myself psychologically, spiritually, because I'm developing bad habits um, internally in terms of my sense of when to stop eating. And of course, I'm miserable, but that's, you know, sin is its own um, reward, so to speak. But I'm also depriving other people of food that I that they might need, that I don't need. And I'm showing disrespect to the goodness of God's creation and arguably to the people who both procured and prepared the food. And then last of all, i'm I be doing injustice to all of you. By just casting a sort of ugliness on the natural conviviality and joy that is supposed to be part of a very simple pleasure. Okay so maybe it's easier to see how it's both personal and social in the case of the sexual appetite but my point is that in all these virtues are interconnected and interrelated they shape one another and justice touches on all of them. Uh, Maybe a better um, uh, uh, way to illustrate my point here, um, I'll give you like a, a sacramental one but first a biblical one if you go back to the fall in Genesis 3, um, again, looking for consonants here with this idea that my actions, even the ones that we might strongly consider private, have a social character implication. We to think about, or if anyone asks you, hey, you're walking across campus, what's up with original sin or just sin? When we think about, I think for most Catholic Christians, what sin is, the Latin term is macula, It's immaculate one, macula, and, Macula in Latin means like a stain or a tear, usually a stain like on clothing. Um, But like there's something broken or wrong in me. When you look at Genesis 3, the effects, the implications of the fall for Adam and Eve, as they're cast out of the garden, you know, if you look at the text again, what the punishment or the explicit effect is basically... Um, broken covenant different forms most importantly broken relationship or covenant with God we see that starting when Adam hides from God in the garden which is a stupid idea in the first place but second of all being ejected from the garden which is a place of intimacy and peace with God but even more interestingly there's broken communion with between man and nature so woman experiences childbearing with the sort of fear of um, the the threat of mortality and corruption, Um, but also um, man now labors and he experiences nature as opposing him, Um, but broken communion between man and woman. He's going to be a jerk and lord over you. Your desire will be for him, whatever that means. Um, But then um, a kind of broken communion just with nature in itself, not not necessarily oneself. the po- my point is simply this. Yes, the idea that sin is a kind of stain or brokenness in us is something that is very easy to confirm at the level of psychology and human experience. But the scriptures go at pains to draw a theological line between sin as broken covenant of, in all these different forms and then covenant that begins to be restored with the election of Abraham and then the sending of Moses and then like the ratification of co- really the mosaic covenant is the decisive one. And it's it's never like okay I'm gonna fix this end thing boom everything's better now it's like the process begins this is a relationship I, I'm gonna be faithful to you you're definitely gonna screw up a bit but I'm giving I'm giving you all the gifts of my fidelity um, and, and I'm gonna bring you to this promised land so that you can fulfill what it, what what it is that is that you are a people for which is to to be with me again and in restored intimacy set apart as a kingdom of priests binding them together in this sort of sacred priesthood um, and eventually to be a light to all the nations. Okay, Um, maybe a more sacramental and final sort of argument or illustration for the fundamentally social nature of well, just persons, but our sociality as consonant with the biblical and ecclesial argument for the necessity of the church. I mean, first of all, in the Gospels, Jesus dresses down more than anyone else hypocrites. Fair not just the Pharisees everyone, right? You say you love God. Okay.
0: Who's my neighbor?
1: To whom do I really have to be a neighbor, right? It's the wrong question to ask. That's what a good neighbor looks like, do it. So the inconsistency between one's sense of one's own moral excellence, holiness and how one actually lives it. This is this is our Lord's big thing. But from a sacramental perspective as well, if you if you're Catholic and you've reflected on the sacrament of penance, um, I think this is a great way to think about it and and surprising to some people. Um, um, When I sin, the church teaches, even if I'm sinning in the most private way, um, the church teaches that I harm myself, obviously, but I also offend God. And offend there doesn't mean like, oh, how dare you, you know, like an emotional reaction, offending God, specifically by setting up a lesser good kind of against him and making it an idol um and and you could think in, ter- in insofar as someone who enjoys the sacrament of penance has received all the graces to be holy in baptism and confirmation um it's also kind of in your face to um to god in effect to be like yeah i know i shouldn't do this i could not do it but i don't really care So in a sense, it offends the goodness of God um, by willfully choosing something lesser. But the Catechism also says at 1440 that sin is specifically a breaking of communion with God. Like when you do something bad towards a friend, even behind his or her back, and they don't really know about it. It just feels like you've done some damage to that, that relationship. The Catechism also goes on to say um, that when I sin, I'm offending you guys, okay? I'm offending the Church because my disordered use of myself or creation separates me from the fraternity of the Church, the fellowship of the Church, um, and also deprives you of what's justly owed to the Church, which is namely me as a full gift to you. Um, A lot of Protestants object that a sacrament of penance, not just reconciliation after baptism, makes a joke of the totality of Christ's work on the cross, like it's completeness or of the unconditional nature of divine love and forgiveness. But the problem with that objection is a problem that many Protestants acknowledge to be a theological problem that's post-baptismal sin. Guess what? I'm a sinner. Um, Conversion, the catechism says, is properly a lifetime endeavor requiring constant renewal interiorly, exteriorly, and correction, and it takes a lot of help. It's personal, but I think it's a beautiful thing, this teaching that what's happening in penance and reconciliation is also fundamentally social. I'm fixing my broken relationship with the church, with the brother I know, the brother I don't know, and fixing my relationship with God. It's not just me being corrected internally. Okay, so... Natural law-ish kind of argument, not a very radical one, or basic fundamental sociality. I've illustrated that with reference to the virtues instead of going to the ethic, Aristotle's ethics more broadly. A few biblical arguments on the nature of broken covenant and how covenant is restored specifically through the sacrament of penance. Um, So as a few summary takeaways, and then I'll go into the second part here, uh, referring back to the three elements of the initial definition of the church. uh, the takeaways I would say are that the church as the new Israel or the sacred assembly is a distinctive kind of entity as I said distinct say from the YMCA Because the effect of in order to the transcendent and as a result It's gonna look different. It should look different. It's fundamental activity This is how it's going to look different is going to be religion and the parts of religion most importantly worship and um, you think of the disappointment you feel when you walk into a church that doesn't look like a church at all. And I think some, and I'm not saying I love modern art and architecture, so I'm not. That's not where I'm heading. But when you think, read how people sort of theorize about what they were doing with Gothic architecture, um, which is not my favorite necessarily. But um, I mean, sometimes they were just showing off, you know, their technical awesomeness. How how big can we make those buttresses? But um, people often you know point out that there's this kind of you know reaching up this, this ex- desire to express on the one hand there's this vitalism about it like the, the, the ceiling is like um, like a, a forest but at the same time there's this longing this art in the, um, the pointed arches as opposed to like the more Romanesque curved arches so the church should look different in terms of our being persons a certain kind of person um, but also by virtue of its activity. Second, as I point out at the beginning, the church is primarily its members insofar as identity derives from the very first from God as temples of the Holy Spirit adopted by adopted children of God. But this is a basically public identity and one that comes back to both the non-hypocrisy of belief and in action individually as well as corporately. And of course, there's differences of beliefs and there's a difference between my beliefs and the corporate beliefs, but differentiating what is the law for us like the parallel to the mosaic law what are the non-negotiable beliefs this is fundamental to our identity so there's analogous um, sort of principles and you could argue in the unity of a family which as i'm sure you experience often involves way more disagreement than agreement um but by that and on that analogy the the beautiful thing about family is you don't choose it I mean, you might, you'll choose it. It, There'll be a choice at some point, presumably, but um, you're stuck with your family, your mom and your dad and your siblings and your great aunts that freak you out at Thanksgiving. Um, And then third and last, yes, the church has a purpose or end and that is to complete Christ's work in time by meeting the majesty and goodness of God. And just adding in some of my argumentation here again, um, this means that, you know, not only is the church divine as origin, but it, it orders us to the transcendent as our end. As St. Augustine puts it, the churches lives in a place of tension because it's fundamentally a pilgrim entity. And I think we're supposed to experience this. Christians are in a daily way. On the one hand, we're exiles. This is not our end. Like the Hebrew people, we are in the wilderness and we're being led to a land that we do not see and we only hope for it. We should never feel comfortable and stable in this life. And at the macro level for Augustine, when he sits down and writes his work on the city of God, he's writing, I don't know if you're familiar with that work, um, I'm doing a seminar on this this semester, which is a real joy, um, mostly as seminarians. And um, when he sits down to write this work, his primary audience are is grumbling, disaffected Christians who are looking at the, the sack of Rome. They're like, what is going, what did God, what's God up to here? Like, we finally, we can own property. Christianity is basically the established religion. The Holy Roman Catholic Empire, awesome. We've, that's the kingdom of God. We've completed Christ's work. And Augustine writes this work, City God, he's like, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God can never be identified with the church as we see it, although it includes it in a weird way, but it can never especially be identified with any relationship or institution or political entity. So these Roman Christians have kind of made an idol of the state and Augustine is like, nope, that's not the point of what Christ was doing. Um, the city of God is not the church itself, but it is all the saints Um, And we only know really clearly who the saints are until at that point of particular judgment. Okay. But his point, Augustine's point, and this is my my third point to finish it off is, you know, we can't with, despite the tension, we can't withdraw from the world because we have to fulfill the work of Christ in the world, which is basically missionary. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, we can't, yeah, be in that place of total comfort and, um, and make the world in effect into make the church, even the church, but especially the world into our, our, our fulfillment in our hand. So tension isn't that great? So maybe the sociological argument isn't was definitely the only argument, for the necessity of the church, but intermingling that approach with the biblical approach, I think makes the argument strong and even decisive. I'm gonna move into the second part now. Um, Why the Roman Catholic Church? Okay, there's an easy and a hard way into this question. Um, And just, I'm gonna do more of the easy way because I'm kind of a historian, or I think historically, but also for the sake of time. Um, Because, you know, I mean, I say it's about history because, you know, when you study history, like the interaction of human events sometimes is a matter of choice, just cause and effect. The effects often, more often than not, simply, cannot be known. Um, so there's this intermingling or this interaction of rational choices and frankly historical accident chance. So you know if you ask well why is the official or the traditional language of the church Latin and not Greek? Just how it worked out okay. Um, I had a professor in my undergraduate who's a British guy in my class department. to you always know, say well, of course, it's because Latin is the language of the angels. So I don't quite have that conviction, but maybe he was right. Um, but broadly speaking, I mean, why is it? Why are we Latin right, Roman right, and not Greek? Um, some of you probably know a lot of history here, but if, I mean, it wasn't, this can't be explained by, but it's certainly set up for and encouraged by a few things. The cultural and political divisions that are already on, present in the Roman Empire before it becomes Christian. Right. If you ever have a great property or are the, the emperor or empress of a great empire, don't divide it up between your kids because then they'll fight and one of them will kill the other and take that part of the empire. So that was a mistake that was made long, long before, even the time mostly um, before Constantine. Um, second, the superior intellectual and overall culture of the Greeks. It is true, eventually the Latins are the more barbaric, so to speak. Um, uh, but you see this in the first, second, third centuries of theological writing. All the important work theologically is, the most important work is happening um, at the hand of, of Greek writers, or Greek-speaking people and writers. Uh, third, the non-attention of the Greeks to the West due in part to the new threat of Islam in the East. Okay, and here too, I mean, as when the capital is moved and becomes Constantinople, that is an idea, something you should do someday. Name your capital after yourself. So Constantinople, which is now, of course, Istanbul, becomes the new seat of the empire. That's a long way away from Rome. Um, and so this that distance does sort of end with the existing divide does encourage a deepening cultural divide. And this is really relevant to the fundamental problem in Christian unity, which is the Eastern Orthodox and the Western. Because when you get to the 11th century and then the Council of Florence and the Renaissance time, and even now, the last couple of papacies, the endeavors I'll point out from Pope's to, to for Christian unity are truly heroic. And by and large, the response is, yay, well, let's do a photo op, we'll have a meeting, but it's like, we don't care. Like you live in a different world from us. And it, some people say, well, it's theological difference. It really isn't theological difference. So, and we'll get to that. but. There's this there's this cultural divide that's a matter of distance, and then as the threat of Islam rises, the attention of the East, if you're looking at a map, is on that, and just like you're on your own over there as things are getting worse and worse with invasions, invasion after invasion from the north um, in the western part of the empire, uh, and then the, for, yeah, I mean basically that's that was sort of my fourth point, um, but to be more specific, you know, by the time you get to the sixth, seventh, eighth century. There's a total political vacuum in the western half of the empire. And guess who the only guys are who are there to fill that vacuum? Benedictine monasteries and bishops, or eventually the pope. Um, that, that, that's a little ways coming. So when you do the study of the history of the church, and um, are you familiar with the term papal primacy? Most of you like the firstness of the bishop of Rome. Um, great papal primacy and petron primacy. Um, so papal primacy is, is the primacy of um, the, the see or the seat of Rome over other dioceses. And what one means by primacy really matters a lot because it could be a primacy of honor, which the Eastern Orthodox are fine with, but if it's a primacy of governance, like you have to pass your code of can law by the Bishop of Rome, not cool. But the theological argument for papal primacy is based on petron primacy. So it's Peter, P-E-T-R-I-N-E. And there, there's a biblical argument to be made that many Protestants agree with. Peter, upon this rock I build my church. Peter, who's in a way the most loser of the apostles, at the same time as the one that our Lord comes to at the end of the Gospel of John says, do you love me, feed my sheep? It's like, of course I love He puts a grave responsibility in both forgiving Peter and commissioning him with his authority. Okay, but when you study the development of papal primacy, so like governing authority, It's slow in coming, but it seems kind of inevitable for the four reasons that I just laid out that are a mix of choice and historical contingency. Um, So for for our purposes, my point is simply this, for uh, the Roman Catholic Church, why the Roman Catholic Church? Well, it's just the way things worked out for us. Basically, we're Latin, we're Roman, and the principle of unity and continuity in the church is the Pope. Okay, the father and architect of the church in the west, though, was not Constantine, um, even though he summoned and presided at the Council of Nicaea in 325, but Charlemagne, who marched, marched his army south into Rome to defend that city, most notably coming to the aid of Pope Leo III, and in turn was crowned by the Pope on Christmas Day in the year 800. Some of you maybe know the story. But just Think of that image, imagine that happening today. New American president, that was like fear about Kennedy, but like, I don't know who, is. the new King of England, right? Going into St. Peter's and at the altar over the, the, the earthly remains of St. Peter, the Pope puts the crown and anoints, you still anoint kings and queens, right? Anoints like a Davidic king of old and says, you are the Holy Roman Emperor. Of course, the dudes in the east hear about this and they're like, uh, "We have an emperor, actually, that an empress," and that was one of the arguments they use. But it's it's a tendentious argument. Um, but yeah, this seemed to be like all of a sudden we have another emperor, and um, and, and now we're competing. And this is, of course, part of the, one of the many sort of sore points. Um, but yeah, it just it's it's fascinating imagery. And if you ever have a chance to um, to go to Aachen, Germany where you it's the most beautiful church. Um, it was the seat of Charlemagne's court um, and just beautiful mosaics everywhere. You see the, the influence of, of the Eastern arts there. You can see Charlemagne's throne and it's mostly been denuded of like a lot of its decoration, but in, 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 in the, all over the throne, there's these little, um, what do you call them, like crevices or whatever, they're just like little holes, but they're, they're very deliberately. And each of them was a relic so here, here you go to the cathedral where you'd expect the bishop's throne to be, their Charlemagne's throne, and the relics sort of signifying this sort of divine fate. It's just fascinating imagery. I, I mention this because I, I say Charlemagne was the architect of the modern church in a certain way because from here on out, all of Western history, the history of the Roman Catholic Church is in some way always about the Pope and Emperor X, or the Pope and King Y, this Duke, this prince, this whatever, whatever. And I said, I mentioned Augustine and why he was writing the City of God because um, I, I, I make this argument when I do History of Christian Thought that the lesson, the point of what Augustine was getting at was as a matter of just historical events, if not just outright choice, was a lesson that was not learned by the church, arguably until the time of the First Vatican Council, like 1890 on. When all of a sudden, the last bit of Italy that was owned, that was the, the country of of the papacy, was seized by these Italian unification forces, and then you have Pope Pius IX, who's like, hold up, and armies surround, encamped around the castle. Um, I think it, yeah, it was the Castle San Angelo. I can't remember. And then there's like a formal teaching of divine, uh, of of um, papal infallibility, so on and so forth. Very dramatic. But my my point is that in a way that loss of political significance. In general, historically, you see this in Augustine's time, you see it at other times, when the church is put into a crisis in regard to its political or, in a sense, worldly authority, at one and the same time, its spiritual authority rises tremendously. You see this at St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, negotiating with the with uh, the emperor at that time. Um, but, you, but you see in the papacy at the end of the 19th century of Pope Leo the Thirteenth church isn't a state or doesn't have a state any longer all of a sudden Pope Leo, this is when the encyclical genre explodes all of a sudden popes start talking like kind of to the world like everyone should darn well listen to them and it works it really does work it's fascinating okay so to finish the easy way into the question of why Roman catholic this is our heritage our culture this is how things worked out as a matter of history the greeks had their own stuff to deal with And this is my heritage, it's as true for me as an adult convert from Canada. Baltimore is my diocese, Archbishop Laurie is my father and God. He's not a man of perfection, I hardly know him, but the pallium that he wears that he got from the Pope, the validity of his orders, link me indissolubly to the Church Catholic through a line of apostolic succession that goes back to the first bishops of Rome. This is as true for me, making me as fully Catholic as it is true for a cradle catholic from guatemala from a much and actually rich um catholic culture and background or for a missionary franciscan from portugal in what is now california two centuries ago okay the hard way to argue why the roman catholic church is not just hey this is the one church with apostolic succession throughout time is more getting to the text that i have here um, it has to do with the interrelationship between the apostolic mark of the church as for the creed and the unity of the church and how the pope or papal primacy authority in general but certainly the, the authority of the pope um, is 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 absolutely crucial but this begins more with um, the the priestly and paternal authority of the bishop per se um, so if you if you spent time studying the bible the new testament especially um you think of paul and his writings but even the acts of the apostles He's so anxious after this conversion, this dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, is it? Um, it's repeated again in two different passages in, the, in Acts of the Apostles. Um, and he's always anxious after that time to identify himself as one of the 12. I, and you see this at the start of his epistles, I, too am an apostle, I, an unworthy apostle. Um, he's not referred to an apostle, referred to as an apostle in Acts. But um, he's, and that's probably right, because he's not yet a leader in the church for most of the Acts. Um, But if anything, the term apostle in the Acts of the Apostles is always alluded to in context of governance, like settling disputes, Acts 6, Acts 8, 14, or specific sacramental actions like laying on of hands. But there's clearly a kind of institutionalizing of the apostolic work from the get-go, from Pentecost on okay and the key moment is acts 15 when there's a, he, a huge dispute about just how jewish christians have to be do new christians have to be circumcised let's just say no okay but it, it really i'm being a bit silly but it is a really important fundamental question about the relationship between judaism and christian what will eventually be called christianity okay so is paul just anxious about being accepted uh, does he have some ego issues um and he, but we have these texts where he constantly is emphasizing, it's not about me, it's not about me. One of the most famous is 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 1 10. Uh, and he starts this mag- that magnificent long letter by saying, okay, I hear that some of you guys are, are groupies, basically. And you're saying, I'm a follower of Paulus, and I'm a Paul guy, and I really like this guy's preaching, so I'm totally with him. And he responds, to actually set the text, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? His point being, there's only one Savior. Everyone else is a subordinate minister of his grace. Okay. Also, there's evidence in, in, in Paul's writings that there is false teaching in the church, and he's astonished in Galatians that people are running after new gospels and that, and warns people that there are false teachers. That's actually 2 Peter. Um, Paul even uses the term heresy in Acts 24, and what this word heresy means is division, but more specifically sex, S-E-C-T, sorry, S-E-C-T. Um, you know, so division in the form of sex or factions like the Pharisees. And the, the point he's making in that passage is you can't be a sect. You can't be a, denom- a Christian denomination because Christ's way is universal. It's Catholic, he doesn't use that term. It's universal, it's for everyone. It doesn't make any sense to be broken up into little parties. Okay, the term Catholic, though, is not biblical. It's first used by St. Ignatius of Antioch in his letter to the church at Smyrna. There's that quotation for you from chapter eight. Um, so he was being, um, he was walking to Rome kind of in a military procession, as it were, um, to go to his martyrdom and different dignitaries or, or not dignitaries, leaders of different communities were, were visiting him and bringing him food and comforting him. And he wrote these letters as kind of like thank yous, um, but also to encourage people. And he uses the term Catholic, and you read that quotation, see that you all follow the bishop as Jesus Christ does the Father, holy cow, and the presbytery, the priests, as you would the apostles, reverence even the deacons. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. So only a proper Eucharist is administered by the bishop or one to whom it has been entrusted by the bishop. Where the bishop appears, let the people be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there's the Catholic Church. This is our first historical instance or significant instance of the used Catholic. I mean, he is basically that strong identification between the bishop and Jesus. Again, it seems kind of bold, like some St. Paul's claims or attempts to identify himself as an apostle, but it's about unity. And he never sets himself up as an authority in itself stay close together especially a time of persecution martyrdom your identity is drawn one from another and the the veracity the, the legitimacy of these sacraments it's not just that the bishop can and does give the power to priests to share in um to, to share that sort of that that um, sacramental power but it's that they are supposed to bring people together and unite them to be a visible sign of the body of christ and the next text is a little bit later uh, for, you might have heard of St. Clement of Alexandria writing the second century against heretics. Um, these are Gnostics mainly who appeal, just introduce some weird teachings, and some of them appeal to like private revelations. Um, many Gnostics um, talk, about, talk about secret doctrines. St. Augustine has the same experience of Manichaean Gnosticism um, where he, you know, it's like, 400 years, but it just long initiation, um, secret handshakes. I'm making the handshake thing up, but it's like, it's a way to bind people in much more tightly to a, to a particular group. Um, and uh, yeah, it's his point though, it, Clement's point is the same as Augustine's point though, that if something is a principle of unity, if an institution or a set of beliefs, and if it's truly Catholic in the proper meaning of the word, it's gonna be for everyone. So, so the, the, the veracity, the power of Christ's sacrifice is precisely that it's for everyone. And in City of God, he really goes at not only um, sort of these Gnostic practices, this is Augustine put that quotation down, but he's critiquing some of the philosophers that he loves the best. It's like, because he says, if you're, you understand happiness, you understand virtue, you understand metaphysics, good for you. But if this is your way to felicity, most people don't have the time to do that. They're out farming. Most people won't have the education to do that. S- knowledge can't be salvation because it has to be about everyone fundamentally. I don't even think this is, is that time correct by the way? No, no, no. Okay, not, not these, Okay, I have no idea what it is. Okay, I, just checking though. So, but but, what I, I, I see sort of three references to the, to the church fathers here. Um, I mean, and some of you know, might know Augustine's difficulty with the Donatists um, against whom he preached in the year 407, just the last uh, thing from Augustine. Um, Northern Africans tended to be very rigorous in demanding the faith, and as to the question what to do with tra- Christians who, under pain of, of um, torture, sometimes deny their faith or would hand over, you know, the sacred um, texts, that, that's where the word traitor, like the handing over uh, um, comes from. And, the, you know, the Donatists said, basically, if you betray Christ, there's no forgiveness, which you can kind of see how that argument would go. Um, but what they started doing is rebaptizing people because they envisioned the church as the church of the truly faithful, kind of like the church of the perfect. Dustin's like, I don't know about you guys, but I need a church for sinners uh, that is a place where perfection is sought after, but mercy is really is, is really present. Sounds a little Pope francis in that way. Um, but he, and so he says, you know, he's talking, his, his preaching is on the nature of charity in 1 John. He says, the Dauntists have left us in leaving they left Christ. Very similar to Ignatius of Antioch in the way there. He says the failure to love one's neighbor. He says, is the failure to love God. This only even makes sense because the grace of God is present in the church effectively through the sacraments leaving, Augustine concludes his preaching. Actually, this is in, uh, yeah, I think it's in the second, his second homily. Augustine says, you cannot go away from the church to find perfection, grace, holiness. Going away from the church doesn't make sense. You can't go away from the church. Okay, so why the Roman Catholic Church? Easy answer is, this is how it works out in history, and it makes sense in light of that. Uh, Does it mean that you can't go to, that we can't go to mass at a Catholic Byzantine, right? Of course it doesn't mean that, but yeah, might need to work on your Greek a little bit though. Um, And have to be very patient because their divine liturgy is like two to three hours long, but beautiful. Um, But but more theologically, and this is just like a, a slice as it were of a complex argument that does have historical dimensions to it. It's really about unity. And unity that is unity of faith and belief, but also that absolutely has to be visible. Yes, this can look like submission or extended public penance, certainly in the early church. Um, but the, and the bishop is indeed the central figure for the early church, embodying apostolic authority. And but it's also about governance; it's about order for the sake of unity. And the authority or the basis for it is never one's own; it's never the guy before him. So Archbishop Laurie, Laurie's authority doesn't come from. Um, what's his name, Cardinal O'Brien, and from what's his name before, I do know, I do know some of these bishops, right? The authority always comes from God, which makes the claim of authority a more grave matter in a way, but also should be a a point of great personal um, humility um, and, and a sense of servitude for the sake of the unity of the church and the good of others. The other um, way which we need to understand this authority is in terms of the priestly and prophetic gift, not just the kingly gift that is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. So the primary work of the bishop is to be a visible principle of unity, according to St. Ignatius of Antioch. But for St. Clement of Alexandria, as for Irenaeus and other fathers after him, it's, it's that prophetic gift that is the primary shape of authority. It's a paternal and in some cases maternal uses um, a lot of biblical imagery about um, about the church that is maternal in that way the word magisterium magister um, is master but the church is called master and mother in um, a beautiful um, yeah Pope John the uh, 23rd but the church is yeah the, these these images are drawn on to describe sometimes God's relationship to Israel but also the church um, but yeah, the bishop's authority is, is fundamentally prophetic. Like a father, he receives, safeguards, preserves, hands-on um, the faith as the as as early rabbis or rabbis are, are supposed to, and as our Lord is described as a rabbi or dressed as a rabbi, and that means teacher. Um, so they articulate, they hand on, they preserve. And it's clear in the life of the early church that, you know, when we approach conversations with the Protestants very often about you know, the nature of revelation, the relation between the Bible and the church, this and that. You don't have to go very deep in your historical study to see early fathers, like they talk about the, 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 the rule of faith. Um, where does the canon of scripture come from? There are criteria that are out there, as it were, that are approved and are a part of this tradition that is being preserved and handed on the life of the church and the bishops especially are supposed to be enactors of that and also interpreters of, of these criteria and how, how they are to be applied. But it is also about the common sense, the community senses of the people. That leads to a whole other sort of conversation. You have to get into John Henry Newman and such. Okay, so the third and last part, so why the, why the Roman Catholic Church? The Pope and the nature of his authority, but the Pope specifically as first among many, primus inter pares. Of as the Bishop of Rome. So it is about uh, the episcopacy and the governing structure of the church and what that is and what it is for. Okay, this is our church. It's often a disaster and the people in it are annoying, myself included. And um, I sometimes think though, I hear the word unity, I'm just like, oh, here we go, we're gonna have to sing some songs or hold hands or something. I just like do my own thing most of the time, thank you. Okay. I think that preaching, thinking about unity, I, I, I think that it's both the first mark of the church, the most profound wound to the church historically. It clearly matters to our most beloved, most recent popes. It has mattered to the church always. In my experience as a convert for me, a pretty hardcore Protestant, no one really cares about visible Christian unity. Outside of the Catholic Church really cares. I can say I'll say more about that in a minute. But back to it as a theological idea, you, like you look at Augustine's preaching to the Donatists and or against the Donatists, and just like leaving the church doesn't make sense. It's also something else I said to my kids. I didn't like it when I said that. <laughs> it's like you've received your first Holy Communion, you're confirmed. It's, I'll share my Simpsons quotation with you at dinner. Um, uh, Ned Flanders' way of illustrating this, but um, it's. Uh, when the principle of unity when the lifeblood of the church when you have been enrolled in a new family you have a new name you have a new identity you have this mark everyone jesus can see it the angels can see it the evil one can see it um, and that's not going away you can't leave it makes no sense and i just think that this the implications of that including just sometimes submitting to things that we don't like, including the irritating person sitting beside us who just sings in totally the wrong way. <sighs> yes, we have to think on pray on this more. Okay, apostolic character. So the, just the last little bit here, I don't have anything um, super developed and written out. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of work in this area with teaching ecclesiology. And um, what I have here um, on the handout, if you can even read it, um, if you look if in the middle there where I say alternative diagrams, schism, heresy, and related councils. So I mean schism is like the, the worst of the worst, right? Heresy is is a, a te- not just a false teaching, but a teaching that divides. And it, historically the, the church addresses these with major councils like Nicaea for Arianism, so on and so forth. And the goal there is especially the use of practices like excommunication, which many Protestants, interestingly more Protestant denominations, and people realize practice excommunication more um, rigorously even than the Catholic Church does. Um, you can see in the context of these early church councils that these, these these arguments and these practices are ultimately meant to restore unity. And this is a really, even just looking into the idea of excommunication or the practice of excommunication, It, it the co- even the code of canon law, but getting into other documents, um, pastoral work is an essential dimension of this. It's never like slap on the hand, go to your room, you're out, okay? And since it's you set yourself outside, let's, let's fix the break, okay? Um, so it, the first example of this, and it's described as a schism, is the separation of the, the Roman or Latin church, not right church, from the Orthodox churches. And the schism is set up for, but is decisive in the year 1054, okay? Going back to the left side there, we say Roman or we say Latin rite, and go to the top of the page as well, um, but we have, it's really a Roman or Latin family of liturgical rites. Sometimes the word rite means a liturgy, sometimes it it's, means a church and a liturgy, but not always, that's not always the case. So we're familiar with the term ordinary and extraordinary, and then there's the Anglican use, but then there's other rites you might have heard from as well which are often not, well, I think that these are, are originally in the Latin language um, and these are all, as far as I know, I think they're all in use. I'm not sure what, as much. Yeah, Ambrosian is in use. But then you go down to the Eastern rites or, rites or churches and you see there um, these sort of two families, Antiochian and Byzantine. Um, and I just wanna clarify here, I mentioned the schism with the Orthodox Church. The Eastern rites or churches are Catholic so the key thing is that you'll see in a sign in the church, if you see the word Catholic, it's a church in communion with the Catholic church. Their orders are valid, sacraments valid. You can go and do everything there that you could possibly want to do sacramentally. We're part of the same family. <clears throat> when you go down to the Orthodox churches and you see those patriarchates, it's not a fun word to say, the Orthodox church is broken as a matter of schism. But this is very interesting where, where many of those those Orthodox families would not necessarily, there's sometimes agreement on language, but um, from the side of the Roman church, it, um, the catechism, the Code can law is emphatic, that they are real churches. Their orders are valid, their sacraments are valid, um, but we're separated by schism and we long for reunion. Okay, but then if you go on into, and I didn't really include anything in my notes here about, um, except at the bottom there, Christian unity it's kind of a different matter because um, when we get into other separated Christians and non-Christians, um, and there's references there to some some Vatican II documents, um, whereas conversations about Christian unity with the Orthodox churches are made complicated by some issues that I've already alluded to, namely their lack of interest, we're doing just fine. They will say, well, the problem is the Pope or the teaching on infallibility, but, it, the eastern Rite churches and their are catholic have their own code of canon law they have a fair bit of independence so i think it just comes back to long 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 history um on the other hand and, and the orthodox church has 14 autocephalous churches they can't even get along there's some big meeting planned in crete i think like four years ago or something and it, it was 2018 and, and you might you probably I, I can't remember specifically like there were some political issues like you get into the context of the Russian Orthodox Church which is a magnificent entity and it's just it's inextricable it's the life of the church there is inextricable from some of the political issues then you sort of shift to like okay there's a a distinct Ukrainian autocephalous church but so so there's the problem of they couldn't even get it together to to, to all like several I think two patriarchs just didn't show up at the last minute for a reason but it was just kind of rude so Conversations about unity with them are made difficult in number of ways. When I say perhaps a bit overboldly, that I've never seen a concern about re- restoration of visible unity that's really serious outside the Catholic Church, I just would point out a couple of examples of, I mean, what this looks like. Sometime when you're wasting time on YouTube, and I know you all do this, pull up the, the old video of the, the filming of the opening procession for the Second Vatican Council. 1962 is okay. Like there's a lot of funky hats there. It invited representatives, um, not not only from the East who came and from r- religious orders, but even leaders of Protestant groups. A lot of people didn't like this. Um, so the Second Vatican Council, and then the production of these documents, like on the nature of the church, I'll say something about that in a second, the decree on ecumenism, Nostra etate about non-Christians. <clears throat> Pope John Paul II, this has been reaching out to Jewish leaders and Eastern Orthodox leaders has been a tireless endeavor on his part. If you look at the part of the catechism about what's supposedly one of the most annoying doctrinal things, the filioque clause in the creed, perceived from the Father and the Son, this is the Holy Spirit, he basically said, if this is an issue, we'll just take it out, we really care. Like that's a huge deal. Basically, like this is something that was fought over for so long in the early church. John Paul II is like, no, not an issue. We can, we can just squash that down or put it in a footnote or something like that. Um, but the desire for unity is earnest. And we again, we see these photo ops um, every now and then. Um, hard to know what is really possible. Okay, but coming back to more doctrinal stuff, the Orthodox churches are true churches with valid orders. We, we're, not in, we're not in the family, we're separated from them, so we don't receive their sacraments, we don't rec- and they don't receive ours. That's, if anything, a, a sign of respect. Moving into Christian unity at the very bottom there, the way that the council talked about, and this comes back to Augustine and St. Haudenotius, leaving the church doesn't make sense. And Ignatius of Antioch, if you're close to your bishop, you're close to Christ. The way Christians are talked about in the Vatican documents is fascinating. First of all, you'll notice that Protestants are never talked about in terms of denominations. Denominationalism doesn't make any sense for a Catholic because there's only one church, one family. Just some kids have wandered off and got into a lot of trouble or something like that. You can come up with a better metaphor. Um, in Lumen Gentium, you'll, you'll often see the language of separated brethren or ecclesial communities But again, if if the church said AME church, not meaning the building, but said that's its own church, it would basically be an acknowledgement that we are truly spiritually sacramentally, like by virtue of God's faith, we're separate and it really doesn't matter that we're separate. Um, and in Lumen Gentium, the document talks about how everyone is, okay, not in the church, but everyone's related to the church in some way. This might sound a little bit offensive to some people, but the, the document even goes on to talk about um, how in, with our separated brethren, we often see elements of sanctification and truth. And then as to non-Christians, we often see signs of great life and not biological life, but. Um, the, the earnest desire and enacting of real moral goodness and and deep and like the kind of language of seeing elements of truth and goodness everywhere was not uncontroversial, but this language is a kind of foundation um, for the way that we are supposed to take the high priestly prayer of Christ, that they may be one as the Father and I are one seriously and see that this whole plan of having the church, which was clearly Christ's intention, founded on an apostolic foundation um, that God's waiting for us to take the gifts that he's given and f- actually finish the work. So we're supposed to take it, act- that we are supposed to take this seriously. What time is it since nothing is working, including my watch? Okay. So um, I, I'm, I, I, I talk about the joint statement, but I, I don't want to get too much into ecumenism necessarily um, in, in particular, but... I just, I give you these things as instances or examples. Ian did mention that might be interesting to just sort of mention this stuff, but um, part of the strength of Catholicism, I'll just say it, the apologetic awesomeness of Catholicism is indeed its capacity to have a place for and, and find a place for within even the Latin Roman rite, great cultural and, and spiritual diversity. That is truly one of its strengths. But that diversity, that greatness, that true Catholicity um, is also supposed to be the thing that fuels our, our fire to actually um, yeah, seek to proclaim the gospel and bring everyone into lived, visible unity of the church. I'm going to stop there and see if there's anything that you want to talk about.
0: Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks